if you've been following along with us over the last few weeks, you'll know that we are in the middle of a series on rediscovering church. And we're looking afresh at what the New Testament teaches us about what it means to be the church, what the church is, how this thing fits into the redemptive story that God is working out on planet Earth. What I want to do with you this morning is take a particular concept and trace it through really the entire Bible. And this concept is the idea of sacred space. It's not something that's particularly familiar to a lot of people, sacred space. What, what does that mean? Although if you are familiar with Maori culture, it may be a little bit more uh, familiar, placed in a little bit more context for you. Because within Maoridom, within Maori culture, the idea of sacred space finds a close counterpoint in the idea of tapu. And tapu simply means something that is sacred. It could be a person, it could be a, a space, it could be a particular object. It's something that is taken out of the ordinary realm of common usage, something that's taken away from just everyday common uh, usage and placed into special usage, divine usage, set apart often for religious purposes, special purposes. And the opposite of tapu is noah, which is common. So you have this contrast set up between something that is sacred, tapu, and somewhere or something that is common, noah. And this idea finds a counterpoint in the scriptures with the idea of sacred space. In one sense, every space is sacred. Every space is inhabited by God. God is everywhere and he fills every gap in every space and he is omnipresent. That's the word theologians give to this idea. At the same time, it is also true that God is specially present in some places in a way that he is not in others. This is why it's true to say that God is present with Christ followers in a way, for example, that he is not with those who don't follow him. And this idea of what theologians call God's special presence is the idea of sacred space. Right from the beginning of the biblical story, God has gone about the work of building on earth, on this planet, sacred space. Now, this all began right back at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. This was the first sacred space that God constituted on earth. And you remember the setup. It was a beautiful garden, Adam and Eve are there walking with God. And we are told even in the book of Genesis that God walked with them, that God went with them in, in, in such close proximity and in such profound intimacy that there was a communion there between God and His people, the very first humans in the Garden of Eden, that we've never really seen since. It's not a relationship that we can get that close to today. And we look at it from a distance and think, man, there's a profound intimacy God had because He created a space, a garden, a realm on earth in which He dwelt uniquely and specially with Adam and Eve, the first human beings. But you know the story. And you know how all this played itself out. Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and so God kicked them out of the garden. Now, the story could have ended there, but immediately what God does, and you see this through the progression of the book of Genesis, He immediately goes about the work of rebuilding sacred space on earth. God doesn't just leave it there with a devastated garden and the introduction of sin in the world. He immediately goes about rebuilding this sense of sacred space. And the first example after the Garden of Eden that we come to is the idea of the altar. Altars were pretty humble setups. You're really just talking about a pile of rocks on the ground that people would sort of cobble together in, 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 in sort of like a shrine-like way to memorialize and commemorate a place where they met with God. 
Let me just take you to one example of this in Genesis chapter 35. There's many we could look at, but let me just read you a few verses here about an altar, an altar that Jacob set up. In verse 1 of Genesis 35, Then God said to Jacob, Go up to Bethel and settle there, and build an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. So there's the command of God to Jacob, Go and build an altar for me. And the narrative continues and is picked up in verse 14. Jacob set up a stone pillar at the place where God had talked with him. And he poured out a drink offering on it. And he also poured oil on it. Jacob called the place where God had talked with him Bethel. Here's just one example of Jacob having a remarkable encounter with God. And rather than just leaving it there and having it be lost to history, he commemorates it under instruction from God by building this stone statue called an altar, sacred space. It's humble, it's modest, but its significance is profound. God is back in the business of rebuilding on earth a place where he can begin to meet and commune with us as his people. Now, altars are one thing, but really the high point of sacred space in the Old Testament comes when we start talking about the tabernacle and the temple. You really want to think about these two things in the same way because they serve the same purpose. The tabernacle came first. It was a portable tent. The Israelites would take with them. They'd pick it up and move and then put it down as they were nomadically wandering through the wilderness. The temple was simply the permanent stable structure that the tabernacle used to be, but they do the same job. These structures really uh, just encapsulate fully this idea of what sacred space is all about. And the key idea, the tabernacle did a lot of things, but really the key idea behind it is the concept of God dwelling on earth with his people. Let me read you just one short verse in which this is described in Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25 verse 8. It's not long, but it is incredible. Then have them make a sanctuary for me. This is God speaking. And I will dwell among them. You and I hear those words, our jaws aren't dropping, our faces are fairly stony. It's just routine for us that God would dwell among us because we're used to this sort of concept. Friends, if you'd, if you'd read this verse to a Jew back in the Old Testament days, if you'd read this to contemporaries of those who actually saw the tabernacle being constructed, jaws would have been dropping on the ground. Because think of the significance of what's being said here. God himself will make his dwelling among his people. God has not chosen to remain aloof. He hasn't chosen to remain distant. He hasn't chosen to stand apart from us. He has chosen to dwell with us. And he has done this in the Old Testament in the form of the tabernacle. When Solomon finally came to dedicate the temple, once that was constructed, he prayed a prayer that went something like this. God, even the heavens, the highest heavens, cannot contain you. They can't fill you. Your glory outweighs and expands beyond anything this cosmos should offer. How much less this temple that I have built? How much less this brick and mortar structure that we've created on earth? How is it that we could possibly conceive of your presence dwelling in this space? And yet that's exactly what happened. And that's exactly what God did. But it gets better. Because the tabernacle is not simply about the idea of God dwelling with his people. Check this out. Flick all the way over. I know we're doing a lot of running around the Bible. hope you can keep up. Hebrews chapter 8 passes this little commentary on what was going on back there with the tabernacle. Hebrews 8 
verse 5. They serve, this is talking about the Levitical priests in the Old Testament, they serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. Did you catch that? The priests serve at a temple and a tabernacle that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. Now, if that's true, then that must mean that there is a true tabernacle somewhere else, aside from the one that was constructed on earth. And indeed, this is exactly what we see as you read the accounts in Revelation 4 and 5 of the heavenly throne room in which God exists, His true presence, His true dwelling place in heaven, in that spiritual realm in which the presence of God exists. That is, in fact, the true tabernacle. That is the real temple. And what you begin to see is that God, in giving the instruction to the Israelites to build this temple, to build this tabernacle, God is essentially saying this, I want you to create on earth a microcosm of this heavenly realm in which I exist. You see that? I want you to create in miniature form this throne room in which I'm surrounded by myriad, myriad of angels worshipping me all day long. I want to create a taste of that on earth. I want to create a glimpse of it on earth. And so to the Jewish mind, when they thought about the tabernacle, to you and me, see, it's quite an archaic idea. It's back there somewhere in the realms of the Old Testament. If you talk to Jews about the Old Testament tabernacle, the temple, it was very much thought of as that realm in which heaven and earth overlap. The meeting point, the intersection between earth and and heaven, where these two realms touch together. And so to step into the temple, to step into the tabernacle, was in fact to leave the earthly soil and step onto heavenly ground, step on hallowed ground. That didn't mean they were stepping off the planet somehow, but this is the idea. And all of the ornaments and fittings inside the temple were conceived to give this exact impression that you are now stepping out of the secular, you're stepping out of the common, you're stepping out of the Noah, and you are stepping into the sacred. You are stepping into the tapu. You're stepping into sacred space. So the temple of tabernacle really is the zenith, the absolute pinnacle of sacred space in the Old Testament. Now check out what happens when we get to the New Testament. The story of sacred space doesn't end. In fact, it intensifies. Follow with me to John chapter 1. It's a familiar passage to many of you, but let me read just one verse from John chapter 1. Verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now the Word here is Jesus. This is who John's referring to. He calls Jesus the Word, and he talks about how Jesus has made His dwelling. The Word has made His dwelling among us. You know what literally that expression means in the Greek, made His dwelling? It means pitched His tent. The Word, Jesus Christ, has pitched His tent among us. And you ask any student of the Old Testament what that alludes to, what are they going to say? The tabernacle. Right here, in the undercurrents of this verse, is the temple and the tabernacle, that sacred space in which God dwells. And so what John is saying now is that sacred space is no longer a garden. It's no longer an altar. It's no longer a temple or a tabernacle. Sacred space is now what? A person. It's flesh and blood. It's Jesus of Nazareth. Sacred space is suddenly walking around on earth. 
Sacred space isn't locked away in the inner room of a temple somewhere, unable to be entered except by the high priest once a year. No, sacred space is eating and drinking with sinners. Sacred space is walking around in Palestine on dusty roads in Galilee. Sacred space is doing all of those things that you and I do, interacting with people who even were far from God. Sacred space became a person in Jesus Christ who was the embodiment of the presence of God on earth. That's why Jesus constitutes sacred space because he said himself, to see me is to see the Father. To look at Jesus Christ is in fact to look at God and to see the Father. Jesus embodies God within his very person, within his very being, carrying around both that human nature and that divine nature. Now here, friends, is the $64 million question this morning. Now that Jesus has ascended to heaven, what happened to sacred space? If it's not a garden, if it's not an altar or a tabernacle or even a person, where is it now? What's happened? Turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, here's the Apostle Paul writing to a church in Corinth in the Mediterranean in the middle of the first century, and he says this in the midst of his argument. Verse 16 of 1 Corinthians 3. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person, for God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Let that soak in. You together are that temple. Sacred space is no longer a structure of any kind. It is no longer a single individual as it was in Jesus of Nazareth. Sacred space is now what? It's us. It's you and it's me. It's the body of Christ. We together now constitute sacred space. You say, how is that even possible? Here's the deal, friends. You remember what happened when Jesus died on the cross? One of the things that we have recorded that happened at that instant is the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. Why? Because of the symbolism, the intense heavy symbolism that was going on in that moment, that now the dividing wall between us in the common realm and God in the sacred realm is now broken. It's now been removed. The curtain that separates sacred space from the rest of common space is now gone. That barrier between Tapu and Noah has come down and God's presence is now with his people because the thing that prevented us from getting into the presence of God and gaining unrestricted access to his holiness and his glory was our own sin, our own shortcomings and failures before him. And guess what? Jesus dealt with that fully, finally and completely on the cross. And now that that has been taken away from us, we have the freedom to enter with unrestricted restricted confidence and boldness, Hebrews even tells us, the very presence of God himself. We are able to come into the presence of God, and yet it gets better than that. Because God said to us, it's not just that I'm going to allow you to enter my presence now. Guess what? My presence is going to enter you. How's that? My presence is going to enter you. And this is what we see happening on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. God sends his spirit. There's the giving of the Holy Spirit by which People who become followers of Jesus Christ are indwelt by the presence of God, meaning that you and I now constitute sacred space. Why? Because God abides within us. And this is the argument Paul makes a few chapters later in 1 Corinthians 6, that we are individually temples of the Holy Spirit. 
But don't just think of the idea of the temple of the Holy Spirit in an individualized sense. That's usually how we take it because we live within an individualist culture that tells us if that's true, it's only true for you and for me as autonomous, isolated individuals. But come back to the argument that Paul is making here in 1 Corinthians 3. He's not so much interested at this point in what's going on individually. What he's saying is you and I together, we together as the church, as the body of Christ, together constitute sacred space. It's quite a tricky reality to get your head around. This idea that somehow the presence of God, the Spirit of God now indwells us, not only individually, that's, that's never in doubt, that's never in question, but the Spirit of God now indwells us collectively, communally, that we are together the temple of God. We are together the sacred space in which God dwells. And it's on that basis, friends, that I would make this assertion to you. When the church is at its truest reflection of the temple of God, is that point at which it is gathered together. The church is at its truest in terms of reflecting its identity as the temple of God when it is gathered together. Now, it's true that we're always the temple of God. This verse in Scripture is not more true at some times than others. You and I, we are always carrying with us the presence of God in the form of the Holy Spirit in our lives as we go about our lives, our work, our families, our social calendar, so on and so on and so on. But as we come together, as we do now, when the church comes together, when Christ followers meet in clusters, in huddles, in churches, as they do around New Zealand and around the world, we are, as First Peter describes it, we are coming together as living stones. Each one of us, like a stone on the wall of the temple, we are coming together and being gathered together. And when we meet together, when churches assemble and Christ followers huddle together with one another, at that point, you are not just existing as a temple, of God, you are actively being the temple. You are actually embodying the reality that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, joining together with other brothers and sisters who themselves are living stones fitted together in the house of the Lord, coming together into that holy dwelling in which God abides in the form of His Spirit. That's the glory, that's the majesty of this reality, that we are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so friends, here's the implication of this. The church now, as the new temple, far outweighs and exceeds anything that the old temple, that the old tabernacle had to offer. So often we assume that, well, that back then, you know, that was, the, that was the real temple. That was the real tabernacle, you know, those ones we read about in the Old Testament. And now the church, yeah, it's a, te it's a temple, sure, it's a tabernacle, but that's just a metaphorical expression to make us sound nice and holy. Friends, if anything... Back then, the Old Testament temple and tabernacle, they were the foreshadowings of this. They were the entree to what we now experience. They were the foretaste of the gathering of saints, the communion of saints that the New Testament brings to fruition. That is the reality, that when churches gather together, they are in fact the true, the ultimate, and the holy temple of God's Holy Spirit. So the church, just as the temple in the Old Testament, was that realm in which heaven and earth overlap, so it is with the church in the New Testament. We are now that realm. Get your head around this. We are that realm in which heaven and earth come together. And to step into the church, to be a part of God's church on earth, is to come to that intersection between heaven and earth. Imagine telling that to your friend when you invite them to church next Sunday. 
Would you like to come along with me to that realm where heaven and earth overlap? Would you like to come with me to the intersection between heaven? It's a bit more uh, exciting, isn't it, than just inviting them to a church service. But friends, this is not just something out of Lord of the Rings. This is a reality. This is the New Testament. This is Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 3. We are the temple. We are the true embodiment of the presence of God. And the Spirit now indwells us, not only individually, but as a people. What does all this mean? What sort of a response should this evoke from us? It's one thing to theorize about it and even to follow the argument of the Scriptures. But at what point does this become personal for us? I want you to turn over to what I hope is going to be the final verse for us this morning. Hebrews chapter 12. And here is just a glorious picture of what the church of God really is. If you're part of a church this morning, if you're part of this church or another, just let these words really soak into you and appreciate what it is that you have. If you're not yet connected to a local church, allow this vision just to capture your imagination and spark a picture of what your identity could be within the context of a body of believers. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, you have come to thousands and thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Skip down to verse 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Friends, when we start to get a glimpse of our reality and our identity as a church, as the temple of God's presence, the dwelling place of the Spirit of Yahweh on earth, there is nothing left for us to do but fall down and worship. Doesn't this realization of the church as sacred space just evoke your deepest wonder at a God who would choose to do this, at the fact that we this morning could be the equivalent of the, of the temple, the tabernacle in the Old Testament? Doesn't it just evoke our, our, our amazement? Doesn't it just call forth just this praise of who God is and a willingness to review His attributes, His wisdom, His majesty, His power, His glory? because of all that He's done for us, doesn't it call forth from us a life of obedience? Doesn't this picture of our identity as a temple evoke within us a desire to please the God who created this sacred space in which we dwell? And obviously worship is so much more than what happens here or what happens in local churches around the country and around the world. But I would argue to you that it starts here. It starts in these gatherings of Christ followers. And this, friends, is why it is so essential for believers to be connected to local churches, not just because pastors say, well, you've got to be meeting together, not just because there's a verse in Hebrews that says, don't forsake meeting together. It's not just about bashing each other over the head and throwing these, these random verses of Scripture at each other. It's because to neglect the fellowship of God's people and to disconnect ourselves from His body, the church, is to run counter to the very purpose for which we're made and to move in, in, the, in the opposite direction from our very identity as a living stone fitted into the temple of all God. 
God's people together. Friends, this should call us into those gatherings and not repel us from them. It should draw us into contexts in which God is worshipped and lead us to join together with all of our brothers and sisters in praising and glorifying the God who creates this sacred space on earth. That is what our worship is all about. That is why we sing songs on Sunday mornings in different ways, different times, different words, and so on, not just because it's fun, although it is, but because these songs give us a vehicle with which to praise God, with which to give Him the kind of worship He deserves, with which to express our identity as a temple, as the sacred space of God on earth. And so worship is always going to be something that's prioritized by a healthy church. You know, in some circles, it becomes so marginalized. It's been referred to as the preliminaries. Have you heard that? Worship just as the preliminaries, because we've just got to get through all that stuff. We've got to get through the singing, we've got to get through the, 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 the intro, so that we can get to the Word, we can get to the sermon. And friends, I'll tell you, look, I love a, a good sermon as much as anyone else, and I'm committed to the teaching of the Word as much as the next person. But the day that worship becomes the preliminaries, in our church or anywhere else, I'm out. I'm gone, because that, I believe, is so counter to what a healthy church looks like. I want to be part of a worshipping church because it's integral to understanding our identity as sacred space. And if worship is to be acceptable to God, it is to be done. What does the writer of Hebrews say? Look back here again at verse 28. Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with what? Reverence and awe. Reverence and awe. How often is our worship done in reverence and awe? There's always a balance in the church between the distance of God, His transcendence, His complete otherness, which we must maintain, and His nearness, His imminence, His intimacy with us, which we equally must acknowledge and uphold. And these things, they're not so much intention as they are different poles that we just have to balance very, very delicately. And my sense is that in the contemporary church, we've drifted towards the casual, drifted toward the nearness, perhaps, of God at the expense of accepting and appreciating His transcendence. And that, I think, has led us at times down the road of being a little bit too casual in our worship experiences, a little bit too comfortable in the presence of God, a little bit too buddy-buddy that we'd walk into church and we'd just come to God with our shopping lists, we'd bowl into His presence, we'd start mouthing these words of songs without giving a second thought to whose presence it actually is in which we stand this morning. That the God who flung stars into space and called forth light at His very word is indwelling this space right now. That this presence of God is equally as real and as powerful as the presence of God was in the inner sanctuary of the tabernacle in the Old Testament. That's the realization that we need to come to, friends, to prevent our worship from just being something that's completely egocentric. And it so often is, isn't it? I mean, oh, I'm guilty of this. We come in and it's about our expectations. What is it that God is looking for from me? What is it that God is expecting from me in this sacred space? Because God stands here, His presence is here, and He expects, even demands of His people, our heartfelt worship in reverence and awe. I really do hope worship makes you feel better. I do. I hope you, you, you go away on a buzz. I hope you go away on something of a high. I hope it lifts you up and picks you up. I hope you're enthused and excited by the songs that we may sing here. But more than that, friends, I hope, and I know this is your hope too, that God is glorified by what we do, that His name 
is lifted high, that he is exalted and not us, not our agendas. And if that means a putting to death of our own selfish interests, our own ambitions and our own expectations even of what worship's going to be, I say so be it. I say so be it to please the God who has created us, to please the God whom we worship in spirit and in truth. That's what worship is all about. That's why worship is so central to the life of the church because it's so central to what our identity is as a temple, as a tabernacle, as sacred space. God has made us to be sacred space in which his presence dwells. That means that God has made us to be sacred people, priests of God, dwelling in this sacred space that he has made. And within this sacred space, as sacred people, God asks from us a sacred act. And that act, friends, is worship in spirit and in truth as living sacrifices to bring ourselves individually and collectively before his very throne, lay our lives down, take our hands off and say, Father, we are yours and not our own. Teach us, God, what it means to worship. Teach us what it means to surrender. Teach us what it means to be sacred space. Let's pray.